Let's pray together. Our Father, I thank you again for gathering your people this morning, for gathering us in this place just to hear the gospel. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to hear it uh, in, in everything that we do, not just as we preach the word. I pray that you help us as we preach the word, but, but I pray that you help us to hear the gospel in our singing, in our taking of communion, in our serving one another in, in different capacities, in our uh, serving and volunteering and, and ministering to the kids. Lord, I pray that in everything that we do this morning, Jesus would be made known, that the good news of who you are and what you do would be made, be, be made known to each one of us. Lord, I pray now that you would uh, speak to each one of us as, as you would speak, as what, that we would hear what you have to say to each one of our hearts. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do the work. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So who is God? Who is God? What does he do? And what does that make me? And what does that make other people? What does that make you? Who is God? What does he do? And what does that make us? And what does it say about how we ought to live? A few years ago, the, the Metropolitan Community Church of the Redeemer, which is a church uh, just a few blocks down this way on Green Street, was vandalized. We got a picture of it, I think, if we could put it up. The church was vandalized, and here's what one article reported. It says, you'll burn. Those were the words spray-painted on the Metropolitan Community Church of Our Redeemer in Augusta, Georgia, according to the Augusta Chronicle. The church is an LGBT-inclusive establishment with an openly gay pastor. And vandals scrawled burn and lies and Leviticus 18.22 on the front doors and the words Leviticus 18.20 and you'll burn on the front steps. The Bible passages mentioned are about sex. Leviticus 18.20 reads, Do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Leviticus 18.22 reads, Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. And the pastor of the church said, I was angry and I was very sad and I thought, just why? Like, to me, it seems so interesting that they're saying on there that you'll burn. In other words, they're saying you'll burn in hell, I'm sure. And quoting scripture, is that what Christianity and right-wing fundamentalist Christianity, is that what it has come to? And we might all wonder, like, how does some, somebody get to a place where they would do such a thing as this? How does somebody do something so hateful? The really sad thing is that whoever did it, they seem to think that they represented the God of the Bible, right? They quoted Scripture. They put Scripture on there, Leviticus 18.22 and uh, Leviticus 18.20. They quote Scripture. So somehow they likely believe that they were right and that they were just. And I assume that they thought they were somehow standing up for God and standing up for His Word and standing up for God's ways. The problem is that while they were familiar with this passage in Leviticus and both these passages in the Bible, and they probably thought that they had a handle on who God is and what He's about, but they obviously weren't actually familiar with the true God of the Bible. And the results of their misunderstanding of who God is and what He does and what He's about, it led them to do something that was very unloving and defiling this place and like graffiti and vandalizing the place. 
And what they told the world in this action about God is that God is hateful. But, you know, if these people, whoever did it, if they could see what God is really like, if they could see what God is really like, then I believe perhaps they'd begin to see the way that God sees, right? And then they'd be able to love the way that God loves. We left off uh, last week. We've been in Jonah for a few weeks. We're done with the picture. Um, We left off last week at the end of Jonah, chapter 3. We've been in there for for a few weeks. And that chapter was largely focused on what God was doing in Nineveh. uh, And and it's it's where we see uh, God interact with Nineveh. We see Nineveh repent, and we see God relent of the disaster that he had threatened. And this week in chapter 4 is where we're picking up, and we're kind of returning to the character of Jonah. I'm just going to go ahead and read this last chapter for us. It's not very long, so I'm going to read this. You can follow along. Jonah chapter 4. So God has relented, and chapter 4 picks up. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life for me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came up into being in a night, and it perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Now, right away, right away at the beginning of this, we see that Jonah is angry. Jonah's angry. And he says to God, in essence, he says, I knew that this is what you would do. I knew you would spare Nineveh. Like, I know you, and I know what you're like, and I know what you do. That you're gracious, and that you're merciful, and you're slow to anger, you're abounding in love, and that you relent from disasters. Listen to what Jonah says. He says, that's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I know how difficult the word is to say and how how bad it sounds. That's why I made haste to flee. Jonah seems to even kind of remind God that, like, he's a prophet, right? And that he can see what's coming, that he knew that God would mess this up. It's like he's saying, I knew that you, God, would mess this 
up, that you wouldn't be able to help yourself because I know what you're like. And he's just bellyaching, right? And as he continues to bellyache, he says, basically, and because I was right, because I knew what you would do, that you'd mess this up, you wouldn't do what I wanted you to do, and I knew what you were like, just kill me. I want to die. He says in 4.3, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah has a constant death wish through this book. Jonah seems to be willing to forsake all hope if he doesn't get to decide who God is and what God can do and what God's allowed to be like. He seems to be willing to forsake all hope. The prophet seems to have forgotten that he also said just a couple chapters ago in the belly of a fish in verse 2.8, he said, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. You see, he must have forgotten because the fruit of idolatry in that statement is exactly what Jonah is bearing in this very moment in chapter 4. He's forsaking his hope of steadfast love as he wishes to die. If he had remembered in that moment what was, what was true of those who forsake their hope of steadfast love, which he said back in chapter 2, then maybe he would have been clued in to the idolatry of his own heart right here. The idolatry that would try to change God to match whatever he imagined him to be, whatever he liked, and whatever he wanted him to be, rather than worship the true God for who he truly is. The true God who created the whole earth, the sea, and the dry land, as Jonah said back in chapter 1. So what's Jonah's problem? I mean, the guy gets on my nerves. It's just ludicrous, right? It seems so ludicrous. Like the, the things that Jonah, even the accusation, like Jonah is accusing God of being the very things that we just sing praises about God for, right? He's accusing him of his love, of his mercy, of his grace, and of his patience. That's his accusation. So why is he being such a brat? Every time I just read this chapter especially, I just hear like a whiny little brat. Why is it that every time that things aren't going Jonah's way in this book, he has a death wish? He says, just just kill me. Right? And why is it so terrible that God would relent from destroying Nineveh anyways? Well, we're going to deal with Jonah and we're going to deal with his anger, but before we go there, it's kind of a side note, but before we go there, I think we should recognize something that's happening here. Like this chapter sort of parallels chapter 2 in that Jonah is talking to God, right? All of chapter 2 was a prayer. And if we think about what Jonah's saying, he's unloading a lot of stuff that has been on his heart and mind, like since God said way back at the beginning of the book, arise and go to Nineveh. He refused to even talk to God in chapter 1, though, right? He just hightailed it in the opposite direction of where God had sent him. But then eventually, once he gets tossed in the sea and a fish swallows him, he's like, well, maybe, maybe we should have like a little come-to-Jesus moment here. Um, but he still has some like unresolved stuff, right? He still has some unresolved stuff that he's dealing with. And now Jonah in chapter 4 is like blubbering with all this pent-up junk uh, that, that, that he still needs to, to get off his chest and, and still needs to be exposed in his heart. But in the blubbering, the thing that I want us to recognize is that there's progress. There's progress. Like he's talking with God. He didn't talk to him in chapter 1. But God's talking with God, I mean, Jonah's talking with God, and he's being honest with him. It's messed up honesty, but he's being honest. He's different than he was at the beginning of the story, and God 
Well, God, like in this chapter, is demonstrating the very thing that Jonah just accused him of. He is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. He's the very opposite of Jonah who's angry. But he's slow to anger, and it's a gift. I mean, isn't it good to know that God can see our anger, that he can see our temper tantrums, that he can see us throwing our fits, and he can have compassion because he can see how we are making progress even when we can't see that. That's good news. Now, Jonah's lashed out at God for the first three verses of this chapter, right? And look at what happens next. God simply asks in verse 4, do you do well to be angry? Now, there's a lot to that simple question, and God's going to ask it again of Jonah, so we're going to come back to that. For now, I just want us to see how Jonah responds to God. How does Jonah respond to God? He doesn't, right? Verse 4, do you do well to be angry? Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Basically, God asked Jonah a question and Jonah walked away, all right? Now, I'm a dad, and sometimes we have tantrums and we have meltdowns, uh, and, and sometimes we have kids refuse to talk to their parents, Right? And so, like, if I'm God at this point, I'm just telling you what it would be like for me as a dad. Uh, If I'm God at this point, I would feel that I only have one of two options in dealing with Jonah. Like, number one, go after Jonah and say something to the effect of, like, boy, don't you turn your back on me when I'm talking to you, right? Or maybe, like, shut your mouth when you're talking to me, (laughs) right? You You better look at me when I'm talking to you, something, some condescending phrase just to let them know that they're little compared to me. That's my first option. These are the options I feel. I'm not saying they're right. I'm saying I feel them. The second option is to just throw my hands up and surrender, right? Because I can't figure out how to interrupt the tantrum, how to get to the point, how to get to the good, because it just won't stop, and it's frustrating. If you're a parent, maybe you know what what I'm talking about. But God shows it to be true that he isn't like me, but that he is exactly who Jonah knows him to be and has already accused him of being. He's gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love. God is patient with Jonah. Jonah walks away from him, and God is patient with him. He doesn't yell at him, and he doesn't surrender. He waits so that he can approach the question with an object lesson. So he lets Jonah go. Jonah goes, and he builds his booth, he builds his shelter, And he waits to see what will become of the city. And then God appoints a plant. He appoints a plant, just like he appointed a big fish to come and swallow him in the sea. And then he does some, like, jack-in-the-beanstalk type stuff with this vine, right? And it grows up over Jonah's shelter in the night so that Jonah can enjoy some shade. Then God appoints some sort of, like, death worm, uh, Just as he appointed the big fish, just as he appointed the plant to grow in the first place, he appoints this death worm to come and attack the plant so that it will wither in the night. And then God's not not done with the appointing yet. He then appoints a scorching east wind so that Jonah feels the intensity of the heat under the sun to the point that he is faint, much like he was close to fainting back in the belly of the fish. And then... You'll never believe what Jonah says here. It's the same old refrain. 
in chapter 4, verse 8. He's hot, he's faint, and then he says, and he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. Shocking, right? But God has Jonah right where he wants him. God has Jonah right where he wants him. And he asked Jonah his question again in verse 9 of chapter 4. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And this time Jonah responds saying, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. (laughs) One commentator actually says that Jonah's answer implies the use of an explicative the way he emphasizes that, yes, I do well to be angry. Dadgum right, I'm angry, right? Dadgum, you know, whatever. <laughs> and then that's the last thing we hear from Jonah. Right? That's the last thing we hear from Jonah, and it's God's turn to talk. And God's questioning of Jonah it reminds me of one of my favorite parts of Scripture. It's also, to me, one of the most terrifying parts of Scripture. It's the last few chapters of Job. Maybe you're familiar with the story of Job, but Job loses everything, like his family, his, his, his cattle, his everything, everything. He loses everything. And everybody he knows is trying to get him to renounce God or to admit that he's done something wrong, that he sinned against God. But Job insists that he hasn't done anything to deserve the struggles that he's encountered, and he starts asking questions of God. He starts asking questions of his justice and his fairness and so on and so forth, etc. And then in chapter 38 of Job, near the end of the book, a terrifying thing happens. God answers Job. Job 38.1 says this, God answered Job out of a whirlwind. I don't know what that looks like. I think it's a talking tornado. (laughs) Right? Like, a talking tornado. I mean, it sounds terrifying. Like, because you're like, oh, there's a tornado. That's freaky. It's talking to me and telling me to answer. And in Job 38.3, then, out of the tornado, God talks to Job and challenges him and says, this is terrifying language to me. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Yes, sir. <laughs> right? That's not it. That's not it, though. Because then God just levels him. Verses 4 through 7, he says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? You know, right, because you were there. And God goes on with this like onslaught of questions for like three chapters in Job. He says, who shut in the sea with the doors when it burst out from the womb? Was that me or was that you? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? I feel like, I just feel like it's very, a lot of sarcasm, right, and, and like, He's like, no, that's, that's right. I remember I control the sunrise. I control the light. I control. That's me. I remember. Oh, I know. What's the way to the place where the light is distributed, Job? Or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule 
on earth, and it just keeps going and going and going. He asks them if he can tame the behemoth or hook Leviathan by the nose. I bring that scene up because the object lesson that God rebuts Jonah with is meant to reveal kind of the same thing to him that God was getting through to in Job from the voice in a tornado. He, in essence, is asking Jonah, did you appoint a fish to save you from sinking in the ocean? Did you appoint a plant to shade you? Did you appoint the worm to attack the plant? Did you appoint the east wind? Do you even know where the wind is stored or where it comes from? Yet you, Jonah, God says in verse 10 through 11, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. It's like he's saying, you pity a plan for which you did not labor. Should I, the creator, who created all these things and appointed all these things, should I, the creator, not pity these people who I made in my image? Should I not pity these animals who I made to glorify me, who I've raised and I've tended to? See, this object lesson is God questioning Jonah, saying, what am I supposed to be like, Jonah? How would you rather me be? I mean, I care for everything far more abundantly than you care and love any one thing. You only care for things that would serve you. But please, tell me what you want me to be like. Tell me, what should I do? What should I not do, Jonah? Like, I created the fish that swallowed you. I gardened and I tended to the plant that you did nothing for. I have a relationship with that little worm that killed the plant. I command the wind. I'm the creator of everything. And you're a creature. And so are the Ninevites. They're creatures too. And so are their cattle. And look how I'm pursuing you. It's not because I serve you like you're my God, like, I'm your, like you're my God or something, right? I'm not serving you like you're my God. It's because I love what I created. You don't know how to love anything. You don't even know how to love yourself. I love you better. But please, tell me, who am I and what should I be like? What should I do? Who should I have mercy on? Who should I be gracious with? Who should I love? Who should I show my patience with? And that's the end of the book. That's the end of the book. We're not even told how Jonah responds. You know why? It's because the question isn't for Jonah. The question is for you and the question is for me. We are Jonah now and the questions are meant for us. I mean, you just, I, if you're like me, I spent four chapters judging Jonah only to find that I'm Jonah and that the questions are all about me and are meant for me. The questions are meant for you. Who do you think God is? Who do you think He is? And who is He really? Who have you tried to make God into? Who have you tried to make Him? What do you think God should do versus what is God's, God's actual purposes? I mean, is it possible that you and I, kind of like Jonah, could in one minute 
be singing like, God, you're gracious and merciful and slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love. You relent from disaster. And we'd be singing this in like a, a song of praise because it applies to me and to us and to my own tribe. But in the next minute, maybe we'd be doubting everything about him, angry with him and trying to force him to serve us how we command. Could we do that? See, I think God, through this book of Jonah, is helping us get to the root of all our sinful behaviors. And he does that by exposing and correcting like our distorted views of who he is and what he does. Because we're all caught up in the same struggles as Jonah, though we may be slow to admit it. And it may not manifest as like an anger issue like Jonah's. And it may not be that we just hate the people of another country who are our country's enemies. But then again, it could be exactly that. Maybe we can't stand the idea of God blessing a a majority Muslim country. Or maybe we can't stand God blessing the state of New York this week. It could be that we hate Democrats or we hate Republicans so much that we can't see how God would have anything to do with them except to convert them to the right political ideology, to my side. And maybe it's nothing like that. Maybe we just want to see people do a little something to earn God's favor, to pick them up, pick themselves up by their bootstraps a little bit. And maybe we're okay with others repenting just as long as repenting looks like we think it should look like. Like, I feel like certainly Jonah would have liked to have seen Nineveh at least get circumcised if he was going to relent from disaster. Or maybe you have questions like, why is God so busy blessing so many others who maybe even seem against him while, while you're still at a dead-end job or while you still don't have that relationship you want or while you still have all those debts that you can't get cleared up? Whatever it is, Tim Keller writes this. He says, if you want to understand your own behavior, if you want to understand your own behavior, you must understand that all sin against God is grounded in a refusal to believe that God is more dedicated to our good and more aware of what that is than we are. See, all our sin is like rooted in a distorted idea of who He really is and what He does. We decide that our definitions are better than God's definitions and we act on our definitions instead of His. So, for example, when we show partiality, it comes from a place of not understanding the God who saved us is not partial to one tribe over another. He's the creator of all people, and he longs to reconcile all of them to himself and to each other. And when we withhold forgiveness from another person, or when we seek and long for revenge, well, that's rooted in a misunderstanding that that our God is a God of forgiveness, that he prefers forgiveness. It's a misunderstanding and we, just, we, just, we don't get that God's a God of forgiveness and that we didn't summon or earn his forgiveness in some way, but that he freely offers it to us through Jesus Christ. And a misunderstanding like that of his true nature can lead us to become like the unforgiving servant of Matthew 18, who was forgiven 10,000 talents, but then turned around and couldn't forgive his debtor of 100 denarii. Or how about when we lie or when we manipulate others for our own personal gain? What does that look like? It means we probably misunderstand that our God is a good father and he's a provider who gives us all that we will ever 
need and that He is all that we could ever want. And instead of finding our rest and our contentment in God, we strive to get more than He purposes for us by using others. And when we use others, when we lie and manipulate to use others, it's an attempt to enslave another person in some ways. And it's a gross misuse of His creation. It's in a misunderstanding of how much He values each one of us and how He values others. Our sin, no matter what it is, is evidence that we've done the same thing as the Ninevites, and we've done the same thing as Jonah. In Jonah 2.8, I already read it. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. We are those people. We are those people. We have distorted who God really is, and we've chased after our own ideas. We've made idols, we've made idols and called them by the name of God, and we've forsaken our hope of steadfast love. That's us. Only there is good news because our hope of steadfast love has not forsaken us. We've forsaken God, but He did not return the favor, right? God instead has pursued us more wildly than He did uh, Job out of, the, out of a tornado, right? And He's pursued us more miraculously than He did with Jonah in the belly of a fish. 1 John 4, 9 through 10 says this. It says, God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and He sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. He pursued us with His only Son, Jesus Christ. That's, that's bigger than a tornado, and that's bigger than a miraculous fish. That's God stepping down. This is what Paul says, that it's God, though He was in a form of God, Jesus, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, 6-8. That's really good news for us, isn't it? And it's really revealing of who God really is and what He really li- is like and what He really does. Like Jesus proves that God is exactly as Jonah accused Him of being. He's gracious. He's a gracious God and He's merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and He relents from disaster. It's true. Jesus proved it. This is who God is and it is who he has proven himself to be through Jesus as he came and he lived and he died and he was buried and he rose again in order to justly lavish us with grace and love and mercy and to save us from the disaster of death. And it proves how his heart is for the nations. It proves how his heart is not just for you, not just for me, but his heart is for the nations and for all the world and not just you and I alone. John three sixteen. you probably know it. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. See, I believe that when we see God for who He really is, we will begin to see the way that He sees and we'll begin to love the way that He loves. You know, it didn't occur to me at the moment 
when the Metropolitan Church was vandalized a few years ago. But I've always kind of regretted that our church didn't just like quickly get as many people as we could and get some buckets and get some chemicals and walk down there and start scrubbing the graffiti off their doors for them. It's something I've thought of often. And maybe, I don't know how it would have helped. I don't know. I don't know what it would have accomplished. But I think it would have at least challenged our hearts, right? It would have at least challenged our own hearts, our own understanding of who God is and what He, what he does. And maybe it would have helped in some way refute the message that the vandals proclaimed about who God is and what he does. Look, here's what I want for us this morning. It's what I want for us as a church is I want us to do radical acts of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. I want us to proclaim who God is through our actions like that, but I don't think that we're capable of it unless we are seeing God rightly. So what I want for us this morning is we walk away from the story of Jonah I just want you to spend some time with God. Spend some time with God. Spend some time getting to know God for who he really is. Read through Jonah. Read through the scriptures. Spend time in prayer and consider these questions. They're in your bulletin, so you can do this. And they're in there pretty often. These are pretty common questions we put in there. But spend some time in Jonah. Spend some time in scripture. Spend some time in prayer and consider these questions. Who is God? Who does the scripture say God is? Not who do I want him to be or anything like that. Ask who the scripture says that God is. Who is God? What does he do? What does that make me? And what does that make everybody else? And how should I live? We talk a lot at Redemption Church about being disciples and that being a disciple is is being a person who's increasingly submitting all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ. But I don't think that you, you and I submit anything to anybody unless we get to know who he really is. Unless we really get to know God for who he is, we're not going to submit anything to him. So spend some time with him. Spend some time examining who God really is compared to who you might have imagined him to be. And let him question you. Let him put you in your place. It's a little bit of a scary thing, I think. But it's the best thing for you. It's the best thing for those around you. It's the best thing for this church, and it's the best thing for our world as we put ourselves in God's hands. We're going to move into a time of response like we do each week. And... uh, There's just a few things we'll do. The band will come and lead us uh, in a a time of worship through singing. Uh, We'll also have a time, there's a basket in the back where you can give your uh, tithes and offerings as active worship as well. And then each week we take communion at Redemption Church. So the bread and the wine and the juice are down here. And you can come through each uh, one of these sides and take it and go out the other sides. Um, And when we do this, we're remembering the bread and the wine and the juice. they, 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 They represent the body and the blood of Christ. It was given and it was shed for us, right? It's a reminder of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a reminder that he's come, that he saved us, that he gave himself for us. It's a reminder that he proves to us who God really is. And it's a proclamation of the gospel to one another. So if you're a Christian, whether you're a member at Redemption Church or not, we just invite you to come and to do this with us and proclaim Jesus to one another and remember Jesus together. I'm going to pray for us. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you again for this this morning and and a time just to gather your people together. I pray that we would be reminded 
by one another and, and by your word and, and by everything that we do here this morning. Remind us of who you really are, God, and who we really are. Like, turn our eyes towards Jesus and the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and, and how he's proved who you are. And let our hearts be opened. Let our, the eyes of our hearts be opened to see you for who you really are. Let our hearts be open to see who we really are and what our own condition is and how we've made idols and how we've made idols and called them by your name and, and how we've served other things and how they all lead to destruction and how they lead us nowhere fast. Show us where we're angry. Show us where we're bitter. Show us where we're unloving towards our neighbors. Show us where we're where you've just got it all wrong and, and write it for us, God. I pray that you would lead us to be a people who are increasingly submitting all of our lives to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would use this church then as you make us disciples like that, that you would make, help us to lead people to Jesus, who lead people to Jesus. And God, I pray for Augusta and for downtown specifically that you would saturate this neighborhood with the good news of Jesus Christ, that your glory would be made known in this place and in this city. We love you and we praise you, Jesus. Amen.